Good afternoon. Um, I'm Samantha Ravitch, the principal investigator on this project, and I want to thank everyone for attending. Um, in particular, I really want to thank the Hudson Institute and the Foundation for Defense of Democracies for co-hosting this event. Um, I also want to thank the co-authors of the monograph. Um, some are going to be speaking today, Juan Zarate, and on the following panel, Mark Dubowitz and Michael Shea. Um, but some may be in the audience, Abe Shulsky, um, Annie Fixler, and Tiffany Rad. I don't know if Tiffany is here, but if you haven't seen it, uh, Tiffany was quoted extensively in a recent Washington Post series on the cyber vulnerabilities of the auto sector. Uh, a few housekeeping uh, notes before we get started. Uh, the first panel will begin momentarily, and about one. Um, we'll roll right into the second panel, finish around two. Um, there is a short survey uh, that I would ask if you could. If you haven't taken it already, we'd really appreciate it. It will give us, it's anonymous, it's short. You can fill it out and leave it in that box. It will really give us a, a better idea about how people are thinking about cyber-enabled economic warfare and where resources should be put to it. We will be publishing both a synopsis of the seminar and the results of the survey, so stay tuned. All right, so let me uh, set the stage for a few minutes on how the project on cyber-enabled economic warfare really got started. Um, it really had its genesis back in the mid-1990s in discussions with incredibly smart people like Maren Stromecki and Nadia Shadlow at the Smith-Richardson Foundation that have sponsored this work um, about the intersection of economics and security. So in 1997, uh, the Asian financial crisis hit you remember, began in Thailand, and the qu contagion quickly spread to Indonesia, South Korea, Malaysia, other countries throughout the region. Um, foreign debt to GDP ratios rose over 180%. During the worst of the crisis, riots occurred, governments fell. The causes of the crisis were varied, but most experts think it was the combination of crony capitalism an economic bubble flooding the market with cheap money, and a su simultaneous slump in semiconductor prices with a rise in the value of the U.S. dollar. But from our perch in Westport, Connecticut, we discussed how economic destabilization in Southeast Asia could potentially affect larger regional securities. What would it mean to cross-strait relations, China and Taiwan? Um, what would it do to radical Islamist and separatist groups like GAM in Indonesia or Abu Sayyaf, MNLF in the Philippines? But it was the Malaysian prime minister at the time, Mahathir Mohamad, um, what he was saying that really got us thinking. Uh, Mr. Mahathir directly pinned the blame on international financiers, saying that they had purposely sabotaged the Malaysian economy. He used the words attacked and said that the economic fires were no accident but a Western conspiracy to rule the world and tell other countries how to run their affairs. We discounted um, the Malaysians' specific diatribe and rhetoric and its thinly veiled anti-Semitism, if you remember that part. But we did think about the broader issue of how a country or countries could use economic means to undermine an adversary or change its policies. We thought back on, on America's use of economic warfare against the Nazis, then again against the Soviet Union, and we began to think if and how the U.S. would need to think differently about these threats and capabilities as the world financial markets became more automated and more integrated. 
Over the next decade, the conversation kind of waxed and, and waned, but came roaring back as evidence began piling up on the scale and scope of cyber attacks against U.S. banks, U.S. defense contractors, U.S. intellectual property, our electric grid, our healthcare system, the most sensitive parts of our government. Were we seeing something new? Right? Again, there's always been economic warfare, where one side in a conflict goes after the economy of another to affect and weaken its overall strength. But the rise of the global electronically networked economy and the growing cross-border integration and interdependence of its constituent parts has produced sizable opportunities for various actors to develop new methods and strategies of economic warfare. Both state and non-state actors increasingly can contemplate new possibilities for using pernicious cyber penetration of critical economic assets and systems in order to cause harm to a target state's security capabilities. So we label this new class of security threats cyber-enabled economic warfare. The attempt at achieving political and security goals through cyber-enabled economic aggression. And in this type of warfare, the United States is particularly vulnerable. As former DNI Mike McConnell said, if we were in a cyber war today, the United States would lose. This is not because we do not have talented people or cutting-edge technology. It is because we are simply the most dependent and the most vulnerable. So we started this project with a few organizing questions. One, within the escalating cyber attacks on U.S. public and private organizations, is there lurking a new type of action, some form of concerted strategy to undermine the U.S. economically? Two, are there adversaries whose strategies are specifically designed to cause economic harm that could weaken or significantly de debilitate U.S. security capabilities? Three, is the U.S. prepared to identify and address such strategies effectively? And four, if not, what can and should be done? So we did not attempt to provide definitive answers in the monograph and, and through the seminar. Rather, what we wanted to do was start a robust, much-needed debate on this topic. The chapter authors and those who have participated in some of the seminars we have held have also been willing to put novel and creative approaches on the table. Some are workable, some might not yet be workable, but it is critical for new ways of thinking to be explored to address this problem. Because to a person, we are certain that U.S. intelligence, defense, treasury, and homeland security departments and agencies appear to be inadequately constructed or attuned at present to address the way these threats are evolving. The U.S. system for detecting, evaluating, and addressing cyber-enabled economic threats seems structurally inadequate and insufficiently focused on the matter. This raises concerns about America's preparedness for identifying and responding to existing economic warfare threats, and even more so about its ability to match the rate of their evolution. All right, and with that, I, I want to turn to our first panel that examines the evolving nature of this debate. We're honored to have three highly knowledgeable and well-regarded individuals. So our format is, is that each will speak for about 10 minutes, and then we will open it up to, to Q&A for another uh, 20 or 30. So first up, is um, uh, the Honorable Juan Zarate, my good friend. Juan served as the first ever Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes. He also served as the Deputy Assistant to the President and Deputy National Security Advisor combating, for Combating <coughs> Terrorism. His phenomenal book, Treasury's War, and I recommend it to everybody. <laughs> 
um, explores the evolution and importance of this new era of economic warfare. And Juan also serves as chairman and senior counsel for the Senate Center on Sanctions and Illicit Finance. So thank you. Sam, thank you very much. Uh, thanks to all of you for coming. This is a, a wonderful turnout and a wonderful event. I want to thank uh, the Hudson Institute. I want to thank FDD, Mark Dubowitz, um, Ken Weinstein for hosting today. Sam, I want to thank you for your leadership, uh, for shepherding the authors and, and the production of this, uh, this very important piece of work, I think. And I would commend all of you in the room and those watching online to, uh, to make sure to pick it up and to read it, uh, because the uh, contribution, at least from the other authors uh, in this compendium, are incredibly important. Uh, and I'm honored to be here today, especially with Steve and, and Mike, uh, to discuss these issues. Um, I want to thank Sam, too, because she gave me an opportunity to write a bit more about some of the issues that I began to explore at the tail end of my book um, that I think are critical as we, as we look forward. And what I want to do is discuss with you and maybe open up uh, the discussion for the panel to talk about the convergence of financial and cyber warfare. Because as Sam has laid out, one of the interesting dynamics of the 21st century is how dynamic, how fluid, how interconnected both the global financial and cyber domains have become and how interdependent they are. Uh, and the reality is the more dependent that the U.S. and Western economies become on those globalized, interconnected cyber systems, the more vulnerable we also become to the potential asymmetric impact and, and effects of those who may try to uh, attack, if not affect, U.S. interests. And so what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about what that convergence looks like, starting first with a discussion about the nature of the threats uh, and then what this means strategically. Um, because I think where, where we are now is we're facing a very dynamic and shifting threat landscape, but also a dynamic and shifting strategic landscape uh, where the threat of asymmetric uh, capabilities uh, is really upon the U.S. and has really been identified by the DNI and others in the U.S. intelligence community. So let me start first with uh, the threat landscape itself and in particular the actors uh, involved in this space. Uh, it's clear that, that actors uh, around the world, be they state or non-state actors, have realized that there's asymmetric advantage in using uh, cyber tools, using tools of financial or economic uh, warfare uh, to their advantage, that in many ways it provides uh, a low barrier to entry and asymmetric advantage uh, to think about the use of these tools in a much more aggressive way to attack U.S. interests. And in many ways, as Sam has laid out, the 20th century and the beginning part of the 21st century was really dominated by not just the Bretton Woods system and American economic and financial dominance, but really a, a dynamic where the U.S. found creative and innovative ways to use financial power and influence um, and reach and suasion to isolate rogue actors and activities uh, from the global commercial and financial system. We're seeing this play out, obviously, in the negotiations with Iran. Uh, we're seeing this play out, to a certain extent, in the debate around Russia. The ability to use financial and global tools to isolate rogue behavior has largely been the province of the U.S. government and U.S. policy. But U.S. competitors and threatening actors realize that those very same tools, those very same mechanisms, some of the same strategies can actually use, be used against the U.S. for asymmetric advantage. And so you see a, a full spectrum of actors playing out in this space, realizing this dynamic. Uh, super empowered individuals, 
hackers and hacktivists for political or other reasons, profit often, uh, using these tools to uh, go after the financial system, in particular banks. Sophisticated organized crime uh, groups using uh, deep expertise found uh, easily on the Internet beginning to infiltrate uh, banks in the financial system. Intelligence services figuring out how to use these tools uh, for state and non-state advantage, again, for profit and for political purposes. And then finally, nation states, some of them major powers like Russia and China, others marginalized like Iran, Syria, and North Korea, figuring out ways to use these very same tools to influence, and we've seen plenty of examples of that. One of the advantages to these actors is the low barrier to entry. As, as we often say, it's not very costly get, to get into this game or to be on the offense. It's incredibly costly to be defending against these. But there's a supply of expertise available on the Internet, often uh, sold to the highest bidder. Uh, there is the dark web that provides access to those willing to play in those dark alleys of the Internet uh, and to connect with those uh, with expertise. There's open source protocols and programs that allow individuals uh, and small groups uh, to, to have global reach. And there's weak defenses uh, globally, uh, whether it's uh, at OPM or uh, in other systems around the world where uh, small or relatively uh, weak actors can gain access to uh, prized information. And so you have a spectrum of actors with a spectrum of capabilities uh, that provides a, a low barrier to entry and begins to uh, challenge uh, the U.S. Uh, system and dependencies. Now, the tools of disruption uh, and potentially even destruction are manifold. You have spearfishing spear uh, techniques and attacks, which are common uh, in the cyber security space. You've seen DDoS attacks increase in sophistication um, and frequency. You've seen malware begin to evolve in some pretty dramatic and important ways, and in particular, attacking the financial sector. And you've seen Trojan horse attacks, uh, which may portend uh, potential destructive malware and botnet attacks. And these are not just sort of wild imaginings or hypotheticals. Uh, we've begun to see them. The J.P. Morgan attack last summer, affecting 76 million households, a good example of the potential uh, for vulnerability as well as destruction. The Dark Soul attack in March of 2013, led by the North Koreans, affecting South Korean banks and operations. The denial of service attacks led by the Iranians and Syrians against Western banks, which continue to this day. The Gauss attack against Middle Eastern banks in 2012. The NASDAQ hack, uh, which has not, fully, has not been fully uh, uh, determined or attribution uh, figured out in October 2010 matched with significant infrastructure attacks uh, like Aramco and others, portends a real series of uh, adaptations and attacks on the financial system uh, in a way that is strategic, systemic, and important. Now let me just move very quickly to discuss why the financial system, and in particular banks, have become such a, an interesting and important part of this landscape. And as I have often said, in many ways, the international global banks are now at the center of the cyber storm. And that's for a few reasons. One, banks in the financial system is where the money is, right? So if you want a profit, if you're an organized criminal ring that just wants to make money, uh, you want to engage in fraud, 
that's where you hack. That's where you attempt to get access to data and to money. It's also where intellectual property, sensitive data, may exist, both reputational data that's important to banks, but also intellectual property that's important to deals and to companies that are engaged in mergers and acquisitions and uh, uh, attempts to enter new markets. So that information becomes valuable to a whole host of actors. Banks over the last 15 years have also become protagonists in many of the national security issues and debates uh, that affect rogue actors and countries. And so the very isolation of Iran, for example, from the global financial system has been driven in part by what the Western banks have decided to do or not do in terms of business with the Revolutionary Guard or Iranian companies and fronts. And also, actors in this space, the full spectrum that I described, understand that banks and the financial system are part of the key vulnerability and a systemic risk for the West and for the United States. And so some actors, no doubt, the most destructive among that spectrum, would find it incredibly advantageous, if not uh, helpful, to try to bring down the system in some way or to destroy the trust that is at the core of the international financial system what Hank Paulson once called the magnificent glass house. And so the banks, the financial system, find themselves in the middle of the cyberstorm at a time when the asymmetric environment is evolving, and evolving in some interesting ways. As Sam has mentioned, as the report lays out, U.S. vulnerabilities increasing over time, not decreasing, with our defenses not keeping up. With hybrid warfare and gray zones of warfare beginning to evolve as parts of national doctrines. We see this clearly with the Russians and how they're thinking about the use of proxies as well as cyber capabilities. Um, And you see this as well in the environment where there is much more fluidity than than in the past with rogue actors able to interact, enable, and profit with and for each other. And so the Chinese government able to use non-state actors to hack and to claim deniability of those attacks the Syrians and the Iranians developing their own capabilities, perhaps relying on others, and the North Koreans clearly uh, developing capabilities as seen in the Sony hack and attack uh, of, of last year. And so there are enormous adaptations happening in the environment due to the technologies doing, due to the global connectivity of the system, but also strategically with these rogue actors, with these challenging states thinking uh, aggressively about how to use these tools. And I know the next panel is going to get into some of the defensive uh, dimensions of the SAM, but, but I do think it's worth mentioning um, at least some of the ideas that I put forth in, in my piece and that I know we will discuss here, because there has to be a new way of thinking about this strategy. There has to be a new way of thinking about these tools in ways that not only puts us on the def- defensive, but also on the offensive. And thinking about more aggressive public-private partnerships and paradigms that allow us to create not only defense in depth, but also denial, uh, strategies of deterrence, which we've yet to do, using financial tools like the president's executive order from April 1st, uh, perhaps some tailored hackback capabilities in particular instances, perhaps with cyber warrants, when the government gives license to the private sector to protect its systems, go and destroy data that's been stolen, or maybe even uh, something more aggressive. And then finally, developing the redundancy of our systems so that it becomes less attractive as a strategic tool for our adversaries. 
Um, so with that, I hope that's a helpful way of framing the issues. It's a much more dynamic environment, not just in terms of the threats and the technology, but also strategically as we look at the landscape. And that's, that's fantastic. And I look forward both in the Q&A from this panel and rolling it into the next one um, to discuss some of those things that, that Juan laid out at the end, uh, particularly the uh, hackback, which, which is a very interesting topic. Um, next up, we have Steve Chabinski, um, who's general counsel and chief risk officer for the cybersecurity technology firm CrowdStrike. Prior to joining CrowdStrike, Mr. Chabinski served for over 15 years with the FBI, where he helped shape many of America's most significant cyber and infrastructure protection laws and strategies. As deputy of the FBI's cyber division, Mr. Chabinski helped oversee FBI investigative strategies, intelligence analysis, budget and policy development and execution, and major outreach efforts that focused on protecting the United States from cyber attacks. So, Mr. Chabinski, Steve. Samantha, right. thank you. Excellent. Juan, those remarks were so good that all you've left me to do is actually pull some of the threads you brought up because um, it re really, what a tour de force as an overview. Um, and um, where you really started, I, I, you know, where, where you ended is where I'm going to start, which has to do with strategy, right? Where, where are we? Where should we be? Um, we actually have a failed strategy right now. Um, the way we know this is we keep putting more resources, more people, more effort, more policies in place, and the problem keeps getting worse, right? So by no stretch of the imagination can someone say that that's going well. Um, and even our best efforts, uh, to the extent that we say we're doing well over time, it doesn't compare to where the threat's going. Um, so we, we keep, uh, th that differential keeps uh, getting further. Um, and I want to uh, address why I think we're there. But first, I really wanted to summarize, in my view, what those are doing to us from an economic warfare perspective, what we're actually doing to ourselves in response that's making it worse, and what this portends for our future, and hopefully what we can learn from that. Well, what others are doing to us, um, as Juan has, has mentioned, um, goes across a full spectrum of activities that range from stealing confidential information, um, some highly sensitive information, um, intellectual property that gives our businesses um, uh, not only a fair market condition, but um, over time we've seen allowed us to become economically powerful enough to sustain our military capabilities. Um, and private information about individuals that we're seeing can be used uh, both to defeat consumer and citizen confidence, uh, as well as used against some people, uh, depending on how sensitive the information could be used for espionage purposes and blackmail and extortion. Um, the ability to capture information also shows the ability to change information and to destroy information. And Juan brought up a couple of those examples. Um, the uh, Aramco case in which uh, a company in the Middle East wakes up to find 30,000 computers uh, essentially destroyed overnight. Um, uh, but it's not only about data, it's also about physical systems that are being run. And so if you change the integrity of nuclear enrichment, for example, which we've seen uh, capabilities that could be used, um, which also could be used against us, um, or uh, manufacturing products, changing its in integrities to chips, components that go into military fighters, uh, which we've seen through supply chain attacks. And what that shows you is that there are a number of ways for the adversary both to react, to come at us, and how they get into systems. It could be remotely. You hear a lot about you know, the phishing attacks that we talked about. It could be through the supply chain, as we mentioned. right? Products are being uh, created all over. It could be either in the design, the manufacturing, the delivery stage. 
Uh, and it could be insiders that are sent to our country, which is fairly liberal uh, in terms of work visas and the diversity of our workforce. And so the vulnerabilities are enormous. Um, and now, uh, let me step back to how we've responded to that, because economically, we've responded in the worst possible way. Uh, what we've done is we've sunk billions of dollars uh, of our budget into the least probable method of success for a cyber strategy. Uh, what we've done is we've focused almost entirely on vulnerability mitigation. We are expanding our surface area through the Internet of Things. I mean, we're hearing biomedical advices could be hacked. There's um, one, one brand that just the other day the U.S. government told all hospitals to stop using a particular type of infusion pump because they're worried that through the hospital's enterprise network, hackers could get in and start changing the delivery of medicine to patients. Um, we saw, of course, a, a car being demonstrated, the demonstration of a car being taken wildly off course. Um, and vulnerability mitigation is a fool's errand if you think that that will work against determined, persistent, sophisticated, all-spectrum actors of the type that we are up against. Um, and it doesn't work in the physical world, right? What we do in the physical world is you do a certain amount of vulnerability mitigation. You lock doors, you lock windows, you maybe change the quality of your doors and windows, but there's a point where if an adversary wants to get in badly enough, whether it's rappelling through the roof, cutting through the ground, they will, and we change our strategy quite quickly to threat deterrence, which Juan also mentioned, right? The idea that we concede the ground, right? We say it is possible for you to get in, but no longer will this be about me protecting myself. It will be about me going after you. And the principles of threat deterrence involve detection, if you don't know they're there, it's pretty hard to deter them, right? And we're seeing routinely organizations, agencies, corporate industries that are very mature taking in excess of 200 days to even know that there's an attacker on their system. So you have to be able to detect them. You have to be able to attribute it, either based down to the person or who's behind it. A responsibility model is perfectly acceptable, right? We don't know if it's you, but you're responsible for stopping it because it's coming from your area. And then penalty, some penalty-based deterrence. The worst that could happen to a hacker currently, for most of what we're seeing in the, in the advanced space, is they get caught and they get to try again. Right? They, they don't succeed at first, but they try, try again. That model has to change. So in the physical world, we put up alarms. And so that immediately says it's for detection, right? You put up cameras for attribution. And when your alarm rings at 2 in the morning, and it goes to the monitoring company, the monitoring company calls the police. They don't call the locksmith to come over, right? Because it's about penalty-based deterrence. And you'll note from an economic perspective that what we've done to ourselves in response, we are bleeding ourselves dry financially with our response because it has led to two concepts. One is diminishing returns on our cybersecurity investment, meaning every dollar that we're spending on cybersecurity now isn't, is no longer worth the same amount as when you start off. At the beginning of a program, just like in the beginning of physical security, the dollar you spend might be worth $100 of protection or even more, maybe $100,000 worth of protection. And it inches slowly and slowly towards having a dollar represent a dollar's worth of security. So that's the diminishing return aspect that we're seeing through vulnerability mitigation. Far worse is we are actually now in the system of negative returns, meaning every dollar we're spending is actually making things worse because it's proliferated and escalated the problem. 
And we see this every day play out in the newspapers, uh, those of us uh, who are seeing victim clients, um, that the bad guys, when you defeat them, they don't just give up. They don't just say, okay, I used to have a life of crime, now let me see, life of law. Is that a phrase? I'm going to live a life of law. It doesn't happen. They find alternate routes. We just heard about um, nation state using steganography, right, codes based in pictures through Twitter accounts to control botnets. I mean, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't stop. And so what we've done is we've spent um, our money and it's resulted in an escalation of the problem. Similar, for example, if somebody were to, uh, if, if someone were to break into your place of business and the response was, well, why don't you put up a 10-foot wall at the price of a million dollars around your complex, and then they go out and purchase a 15-foot ladder for $30. And then the response is, you know what? 15-foot ladder, time for you to make it a 20-foot wall. <laughs> we all know what's going to happen next, but... That is happening to us here. So not only are we falling victim economically to the fact that our intellectual property is being stolen, fair markets are being distorted, uh, our banking and finance system itself is vulnerable, as is the rest of critical infrastructure, but then our response has actually furthered our economic dependencies um, at a loss of viability for our security. Um, so where, where do we go from here? And that's really where the second panel is going to answer uh, the questions. But um, certainly, I, I think that threat deterrence um, has to be the predominant focus, using all elements of national power, diplomatic, informational, military, economic, law enforcement, typical DIME-LE, in consideration of the private sector's role. Uh, for that, we have a global private sector. Um, can be very influential. This is not just a U.S. problem, of course. Um, and, and, and as we think about that strategy, the other thing that we really have to be concerned with is how the political and economic warfare that we're facing can result in a crisis of confidence in our country, which could, of course, be as, as severe or, or, um, or, or more severe than actual consequences. I think we're facing uh, the p real potential of a crisis of business confidence, the ability to um, be protected, uh, in today's uh, global economy, consumer confidence, the ability actually to do anything online any longer, to take advantage of technology like infusion pumps, insulin injection pumps, automobiles, right? So the economy that's, that's being driven through technology um, can face a consumer confidence backlash and, unfortunately, citizen confidence if we feel that the country cannot protect us and is actually subject to extortion at any given time. In this country, we have police forces who routinely are being extorted through ransomware in which organized criminals are breaking into police force computers, not only police force computers, and telling them, if you don't pay us our ransom fee, we'll delete or destroy or just not allow you ever to have access again to all of your records. And police forces are paying extortion to foreign criminals. What happens when that happens at a nation-state level against us? Is it already happening and you just haven't been apprised of it? And with those remarks, we'll pass it off to the distinguished congressman. Jeez, that's, that's wow. fantastic. Yeah. That's, Time that's for a drink. <laughs> <laughs> it's afternoon. It's, yeah, right. Um, 
Uh, look, we are really pleased to have uh, Chairman Mike Rogers uh, addressing us today as a former member of the U.S. Congress representing Michigan's 8th Congressional District, member of the U.S. Army, FBI Special Agent. Mike really is in a unique position to shape the national debate on a wide variety of issues, including this one. Um, he hosts the nationally syndicated Something, Something to Think About with Mike Rogers on Westwood One. And from his time in the U.S. House of Representatives, where he chaired the powerful House Intelligence Committee and was a member of Energy and Commerce. Mike built a legacy as a tireless and effective leader on cybersecurity, counterterrorism, and national security policy. We welcome you, Mike. Thank you, Samantha. Well, what I've learned today is Stephen was an FBI agent that apparently was assigned to catch smart criminals. I was the FBI agent <laughs> apparently supposed to catch the dumb ones. So when they needed a door kicked in, Stephen, they called me. When they needed to catch the guy in Russia on the, in, a, in his mother's basement on the computer, they called you. <laughs> which is uh, which tells you how much smarter it was. Matter of fact, I've had the opportunity to meet and, and spend some time with all your panelists you'll see today and all of the authors of the book, and I highly recommend it. Believe me, I've read a ton. This is, to the point, provide you some unique uh, talking points that is a little bit different, it's a little out of the box, and I love that thing. I spent this weekend reading it. But when I walked into the room today with all the panelists, it struck me that the IQ of the room on average went down 15 points. Now, I don't know why that happened. Oh, come on, people, like me, for God's sakes. I know it's pretty serious. Two things have happened in the last decade that we just don't talk about, and we don't want to talk about it. Uh, we have had a strategic erosion uh, in our dominance in both cyber and space. So you think about in 2007 when the Chinese launched a rocket that took out a satellite humming around the, uh, our Earth at about 11,000 miles an hour and hit their target. Thankfully, it was their own. You think that from that day forward and then a whole host of other activities, including what some would call killer satellites, Americans dominant in space came to an end. We no longer were uh, uncontested in space. And you think about how reliant we are on space for everything we do in our economy. That was a fundamental change. And that meant policymakers like us had to start figuring out how we counter that. How do we step up in that breach and counter that? Now you have to launch a satellite that not only can do its mission set, but can protect itself. That is a whole new ball game when it comes to space. About half of all the satellites up there don't belong to the United States, and some of them are up to some pretty nasty things. Then you take cyber. We watched this problem happen year over year over year. And here's the thing. Here's the good news about the former DNI McConnell's comment uh, that if we were in a cyber war, we would lose. Uh, if we were in a cyber war, we would lose. That's the good news of it. Here's the bad news. We are in a cyber war in the United States, and we're not winning. It's that bad, and it is getting worse. So you think about where we are today. Most of our financial system is under attack, some successfully, some not. We now know, and you'll hear from other panelists, about how the new generation of technology, which we pride ourselves in, making a car do amazing things, is now susceptible. Airplanes have been hacked. They're susceptible. Our electric grid has been penetrated. It's susceptible. And what they don't tell you in the second part of that is, don't worry, nothing to see here, move along, we've got it fixed. Why? Because we don't. Last, uh, the FBI just came out with an interesting report that 13 over, uh, thir year 13 over year f uh, 14, there was a 53% increase in economic targeted American business espionage. 
53% increase over one year. And the bad news was it was outrageously bad the year before. Why? No consequence. Right? They have been absolutely been able to get away with it. China has built an entire economy on stealing intellectual property, not only from us, but from our European allies and other Asian allies. Anyone that has a company that has intellectual property is subject uh, to getting it ripped off, and likely they have. And so we have, we have watched this problem get worse, and I, I, I get worked up about this. I just read today uh, where Department of Homeland Security has issued a letter in opposition to the one piece of legislation the Senate is, is ready to move here called CISA. Um, for, for those of you who are familiar with our bill called CISPA, all, all of that tells you we've got problems, right, with acronyms in Congress. For the one reason that it allows companies to directly go to, to certain intelligence agencies to share malicious threat code, which, by the way, has been happening intermittently in the past. So the one thing that we looked at in Congress and said, here's the biggest problem. We have to foster sharing. So everybody says sharing is the key word, right? If we can share malicious source code in real time, machine to machine, zeros and ones at light speed, we might, might be able to put a dent in this. And so what you're seeing and why we have watched it happen year over year is now there's a bill out there that I think can be very, very productive, allows and protects those relationships so that companies can feel comfortable going, knowing that their information is safe and saying, we have this malicious source code, you have to help us with this, we don't know where it came from. Now our own government is going to work against itself for God only knows how long, again, over the details of how we come up with a cyber sharing regime in the United States. In the meantime, I mean, I think the first bill was passed in 2013 by Dutch Ruppersberger and myself in a big bipartisan vote in the House. So that's, we're going on certainly two years, going to likely be three years. We still can't come together. The White House can't talk to the Congress. The Senate can't talk to the House. The House can't talk to the Senate. In the meantime, how many trillions of dollars have we lost in both potential economic gain and real dollar loss? Billions billions and billions and billions of dollars. And the one trump card that they will throw down, and they did it in the DHS letter to stop the legislation, is, quote, we have privacy concerns. That stops everything. In the meantime, the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, unfortunately now the North Koreans, we could list about 15 other nation states, are already on your networks. They're stealing your information pretty much daily at ease, again, with no consequence. So think about where we are today versus we were 10 years ago. Space, we are no longer the dominant player uh, in space. It is now contested. Now, our technology is better, clearly, in many cases. But now we have to worry about the safety and security uh, and the survivability of many of those old systems, and including some of the relatively new systems that we launched into space. Big problem uh, for any business anywhere in the world, uh, let alone how tied we are to the economy. On cyber, getting our clocks cleaned, now the intelligence community is going to set up its own version of a cyber center to try to police up its act. And by the way, I think this is probably a really good idea. We didn't even know all the capabilities amongst our own intelligence folks. Why? People kept throwing down the privacy note, and we stopped everything for two years. We couldn't get the intelligence community together to share information in a real and meaningful way, real time, again, machine to machine, nobody's reading emails in order to push back on what we know is a serious and growing threat to the United States. Couldn't quite get ourselves there. And the last part of this in 2014 was a huge policy shift 
that we all, as Americans, kind of yawned and moved along. We had two nation states, uh, not the most capable on our list of nation states we worry about, make the calculated decision that they were going to use their nation state capability to exact an economic punishment of a single United States business. Now, normally, if somebody went in and blew up somebody's warehouse and they fired a missile or sent some sabotage group from somewhere across the world into the United States to do that, be an act of sabotage, it would be an act of war or an act of terrorism, a political entity using destruction to further its political gains. Clearly fits in the definition of terrorism at the very least. We saw nation states in 2014, and both of those cases now are public. One is the Sands Resort Casino, uh, and the other is the Sony case. Both of those involved nation state cyber capability and cyber actors. And the problem, and I think what all the panelists have said today, is where is the deterrence to doing that? There is no deterrence. They're not going to stop. They're going to actually increase their ability to have the capability to conduct those kind of attacks. And they will continue to pick companies of which they find vulnerable to do economic uh, and real destructive harm. And if you think about you know, the Sands Resort Casino, it was a, kind of a similar type uh, arrangement where the CEO gave a speech about why Iran should not get a nuclear weapon. They decided that was an affront enough that they would use their nation-state capability to attack the Sands Resort Casino. It took them a long time. They ended up penetrating a casino out in Pennsylvania and worked their way back to their headquarters. It took them a long time to do it. They were determined before they did millions of dollars worth of damage at that headquarters for a political purpose. Uh, America's response, not much. And so we have kind of yawned at this notion that we have this problem, but as long as I can get to Starbucks with my app and I can pay for my parking on my iPhone, everything must be okay. The problem is every day we erode our ability to protect a growing and more complicated system. Lastly, we are getting ready to add 28 billion billion new applications to the internet the internet of things everything from your garage door opener uh, and I don't know about you but every time I walk by my refrigerator in my house I think it's working against me already <laughs> let alone now thinking that it's on the internet working against me as well this is a huge problem for us and I think you know you'll hear a little bit about this on the second panel uh, especially with the automotive focus we're going to add all of these devices. Not one ounce of security prevention has been planned in any of it. And one of the biggest things that happens to you when you have an application on your network uh, is if you talk to your security folks, is they probably don't even know that application is on their network. There are good companies coming out now understanding how you map uh, adequately map in real time a network. It is harder than it sounds. Nobody has completely 100% mastered it. There's a couple that are close. But that means on your, on your networks, your private sector networks, there are huge vulnerabilities built in that even your, the best security companies. So you ask, why does a, a serious financial institution on the West Coast get penetrated? They spend $250 million a year on cybersecurity alone, $250 million. They get penetrated. Why? It's because the complicated nature of network and how you manage the network and even understanding what application is on it. I always say that this is not just a technology problem. It's an anthropology problem, too. It's a people problem. Uh, if you wonder why the Chinese have stolen uh, as much data that isn't related necessarily to a criminal act, Anthem Medical, 
Uh, and, and the list is pretty long. We could be here an hour going down the list. Certainly the OPM, they give it lots of really detailed personal information. Why would they do that? 85% of all the success rate of a Chinese penetration of your network comes from a phishing email. Imagine the email I can create if I know everything about you for the last 10 years, and I mean everything. And I also know when the last time you went to the doctor and exactly what you had done at the doctor and what your billing status is. Imagine that email that comes to you at work that says, last week, Mike, you had your knee looked at, you had it x-rayed. I think I screwed up on the billing cycle. Would you verify that this was your, your x-ray, not, not the guy next after you? Yeah, I was there last week. Yes, it, the, the email came from my doctor. At least it looks like it came from my doctor. I click on it, they're in. 85% of the Chinese success rate. They've just increased their targeting by 53%. I'm not the smartest guy in the, in the, in the room, but in the FBI, we would call that a clue. <laughs> we got problems of brewing. So I appreciate the discussion, and uh, thanks, for, thanks for including it's, me today. That's, that's it. fantastic. We have about uh, 15 minutes or so to really open up for, for questions. Um, uh, focusing on, on the evolving threat, and, and from this panel became clear that the evolving threat is both from our adversaries and, frankly, from ourselves against ourselves as well. Um, so I don't know if someone has a, a, a mic or small enough room. Sir? Here comes the mic. Hello, my name is George Murnu, and my question is, is there like any difference in approach to cyber warfare between the public and the private sector? Can we even just say like all private sector goes in one way, all public sector goes the same way? Are there any, any differences in an approach to that? Thank you. You want to take it? Uh, you know, I, and, and I have, I think, a little bit of a different perspective than some of my panelists, so this should be an interesting discussion. I worry about this. 85% of the networks in the United States are, pub are private. And contrary to popular belief, the Na National Security Agency is not on those networks. They're not. Not unless they have a warrant to be there, and that is highly unlikely. And so what happens is you have this uh, intelligence services overseas trying to collect information, bring it back to protect the government. What we want to do is share that information in real time so the private sector can protect themselves. That's where we are today. It's not working very well. Sharing is terrible. No one wants to do it for liability reasons. A whole host of good reasons why not to share, which hopefully we can fix. Here's the problem with the private sector saying, the heck with it. I'm going to go and flick whoever I think did this. Attribution led, uh, uh, determining who and attributing that attack to a certain nation state or international criminal organization, there are capabilities all over the map. Some can do it very, very well. Some think they can do it very, very well. Some don't have a clue how to do it, but wouldn't stop them from doing it anyway. The government would then be in the responsibility, how do I protect 25 businesses from what would be that second order impact, right? If I attack you, you come flick me in the forehead, I'll guarantee you they're not going to sleep on it overnight. They're going to come back. Why? Because they've already been trained that there's not much of a consequence to doing this. How, in, how do you contain that? If we don't have a good policy on this, I always argue you've got to have a good defense before you go out and, uh, and do something bad to your neighbor. I always say, you know, if you're going to punch your neighbor in the nose, hit the weight room for a few months first, right, because he's likely to hit you back. And the problem is we have no good defense today for the, that 85% of the networks. And so the companies that are really good at it, they would be fine. I, there's a lot of companies I wouldn't have any problem doing that. 
The problem is what do you do when they take out the 15 companies that are their suppliers that can't withstand a cyber attack at all? Now what do we do? Now we have an engaged private sector against a nation state of which we're kind of watching happen as a government entity. What do you do? How, where, how do you stop the escalation? Now from a government entity, we have all kinds of ways to stop, you know, to de-escalate any event. You have none of that in cyberspace. That's what I worry about. We'd have to get all of that right before we'd allow them to happen. Just real quickly, uh, I just love being on this panel with these gentlemen. It's awesome. Um, but three, three problems, and you've identified a, a critical question. One, the, the adversaries we're talking about don't differentiate between public and private, right? They, they in many ways, uh, you know, the autocratic states, in particular the totalitarian states, it's all one thing, right? Their, their economic power and influence is a part of state power and influence, right? The Chinese have actually identified their banks as a strategic asset, right? So st a starting principle is that our adversaries in this space don't differentiate. Secondly, if we think about national defense, resilience, health, you know, our health system, our financial system, our infrastructure is a part of that. And so in some ways, the, the clear divide between public-private in many ways in this environment doesn't make a lot of sense. Third point I'd make is, I think one of the challenges, and Mike referenced this, is um, how we how we interact between the public and the private sector. Information sharing is sort of a, a leading edge of that question, but but also it's a fundamental question of our national security architecture. How do we actually enlist the private sector in a way that enables them, defends them, and makes us part of a national resilient campaign uh, when there's a, a, a clear blend? Um, and one, one sort of way of thinking about this, and maybe this is where Mike and I disagree, is I do think there's a way of thinking about this a bit more aggressively, a cyber privateering model that frankly takes straight from our Constitution. Uh, the founding of our republic came at a time when there was much unease about maritime security. We have a provision in the Constitution for letters of mark and reprisal for the government to actually leverage uh, privateers in the maritime security domain precisely because there was this blend of threats in this blended environment. I think we need to start thinking a little bit more aggressively because the environment itself doesn't differentiate between public and private. We don't want to do damage to our Constitution or the way we, uh, we foster the private sector and protect it, but we also can't ignore the fact that the private sector, whether it's the SANS, Sony, J.P. Morgan, are a part of our national resilience and economy. Do you want to hear uh, one other question? Then you can Actually, I wanted to add one thing uh, on this matter. It's, it's something that both the chairman and, and Juan talked about when discussing the differentiation in our country with what's government-owned and what's private sector-owned, but it goes a little bit past that. Um, in our country and in most of the Western uh, countries, there's a very hands-off view to the Internet, right? You have to allow technology to innovate and governments um, actually have it as a philosophy to not get overly engaged um, in the infrastructure. Um, that's not happening everywhere in the world. So the countries that we've already mentioned that get thrown out, Russia, China, North Korea, um, they are balkanizing the Internet. You just don't realize it. They have filtering in place. They own the infrastructure. They're monitoring the infrastructure. They can take it up, turn it down, have resilient approaches. Uh, and so that relationship that we have with the private sector, where we're hands-off, but at the same hand, it's not resulting in secure outcomes isn't being followed everywhere. And what we're, we're seeing is that as the rest of the world, those who tend to be the aggressors are really locking down um, their infrastructure. 
we're going in exactly the opposite direction in a way that um, really would not be considered, um, I, I, I guess, um, obvious uh, when we do other things. For, for example, if, if I were to say um, I could develop one cell tower that has so much power that all you need is one cell power, you'll always have your four bars wherever you are in the country. The only problem is it'll give you cancer. You know, everyone would say, well, that's a ridiculous invention. It's no good. Don't, don't use it, right? And if I said I could, you know, build a car that could go 2,000 miles an hour, you'll be in, you know, California before you know it. The only problem is our roads aren't set up for it. Everyone would say that's the most ridiculous, ludicrous idea I've ever heard. But in technology, you can develop and sell almost anything regardless of the security and economic consequences to our country. Uh, and so we really have to start thinking about what, you know, what we're permitting and that relationship between the private sector and the government um, has to really shift in common cause to health and safety and security. Great. Thank you. Um, uh, we'll take a couple of questions. I just want to reference in, in the monograph, both in Juan's chapter and in Michael Shea's chapter, there are discussions about letters of Mark, and in fact, there are some really interesting footnotes about some law school articles that have been written specifically about letters of Mark and cyber that I, I commend you to. Um, Good afternoon. Keith Smoley. Uh, just want to follow up on your last comments, uh, Mr. Chabinski. Um, a lot of the focus is how do we make the network more defendable, more robust, more resilient? How do we attribute the threat actor who actually hacked the system? At what point do we flip the model like you were just alluding to and start holding the actual manufacturers accountable? Because I guarantee you in most of these uh, intrusions, whether it be Sony or elsewhere, it may have come in by a spear phishing attack, but it was utilizing a vulnerability in Adobe or Flash or some other uh, vendor software that is running on that network. So what time do we start holding them accountable and start cleaning our own house? I think we'll start with Steve, yeah, and then um, I think it's the wrong perspective, quite frankly. I mean, we, we don't demand perfect security in any other aspect of our life. I would never dream that if my house got burglarized, I should start being going after the architect and the contractors. I mean, if, and saying, you know, someone was able to tunnel through the ground. Right? Our market right now is incentivizing the purchase of low-cost, quick-to-market products, that don't have that level of security, but never will. I'm not saying that there can't be a better job in coding, and there are some companies that have done an excellent job, and I'm all for it. But the fundamental issue we're talking about today wouldn't change, right? That nation states and organized crime groups that are persistent and determined will always be able to break in sooner or later because it is impossible, based on vulnerability mitigation efforts, to secure a dynamic, interoperable environment which is what we have in the Internet. The only time you see it in the physical world is something like a bank or a fortress, right? It doesn't move and it doesn't change much over time. You could really secure it. But once you say we're going to actually meet up with everybody and we're going to change all the time through updates, upgrades, and, and connections, that's the fool's errand, right? So the real cho choice here is how are we going to start taking some of this money and putting it into a robust conversation and intellectual analysis Right, bring actual analytic standards to options analysis. Right, when these things happen, how do we build platforms that, where necessary, are not better necessarily at being secure, but are a lot better at detection, attribution, and then figure out what our policy choices are. And we might find out, despite I think you, you took your, your you took the card. I'll, I'll make it this one: that some of the systems that we need the best security for, coincidentally and and, and a good coincidence, have the least privacy concerns.
right? Like the electric power grid, right? If you work for, well, I'm, I'm not, I'm, forget about smart grid for a second, but the standard electric power grid, everybody who works there and owns it wants to have perfect knowledge of who's on it at every given time, very low privacy demand. So that's where I would start, not by necessarily cleaning up the house from a vulnerability mitigation point of view, which, you know, God bless you if it could be done, but figuring out how to build in detection, attribution, and real policy choices to give to our uh, leaders um, in those areas that matter most. Yeah, just real quickly, I, I think there's a different dimension of liability here that's important because what we haven't enabled is, frankly, the, the uh, private sector bar, I mean, the, the plaintiff's bar, to actually be a, a force in this environment. With the attribution revolution, I think there's actually an opportunity to think about uh, class action lawsuits, key TAM actions, um, victims of cyber, malignant cyber attacks um, that allow victim companies, individual shareholders to actually go after companies that are taking advantage of the environment, right? So Chinese SOEs that are using stolen data, why aren't they subject to uh, not just government action, but potentially even private litigation? So I think the, the, the question of liability is an important one, but I think we need to flip the model a bit more and empower the private sector to actually be an actor in, in deterring. Mike, I think we have time for, for one quick um, question. Michael, quick. Uh, <laughs> just to get you all on the record of this, because you, you did you, how, did you how fast the, the tables change? Yes. <laughs> Is it fair to say that the U.S. private sector in cyber has no right of self-defense, according to the law? That that is our policy. They have no right of self-defense. In the same way, there's a duty to retreat. They have no right of self-defense. And I, I think I'd like to begin with Juan because you advise banks on this. When you, when you listen to the lawyers or the lawyers seek uh, to, to work with you on this, do they feel that the bank has a right to defend itself when it comes under attack by either criminals yeah. or by nation states? I think part of this is how you define defense, right? Because if, if you define defense passively, you'll say, of course, we've got the right to defend. We've got the right to create layers and redundancies. And a lot of the criticism is they haven't done those. They haven't done a lot of the uh, cyber hygiene that they need to do in terms of uh, employee awareness, et cetera. So, they would say, certainly we can do that. There's also a lot of reticence in the private sector, to, to the chairman's point, to actually getting involved too actively, right? They, I, there are a lot of companies that really don't want the very idea of hack back or to be sort of active defenders of systems. They, they want the government to do it. They want more information to be able to do it themselves. So in that sense, if you define defense broadly, yes, they do. Uh, do they have an active defense role to play at this point? And is there a legal structure for that? No. I mean, you know, defense uh, of, of person or property is a justification, right? So it's a, an otherwise illegal activity. Um, I, I think it's very uncertain, right? We haven't seen prosecutions against companies, right? So, you know, that might be prosecutorial discretion. Um, we don't know what would happen uh, if there were a case that was taken up. So, unfortunately, a lot of this is theoretical. But what I certainly would say is there's no, there's no certainty in this area. And businesses, unlike individuals who are more likely to roll the dice, Businesses hate uncertainty, right? And we're a nation that can't even get a national data breach law 
right? We're stuck with, you know, dozens upon dozens of individual state laws in the area of data breach notification, right? So what's the chance of a company figuring that they have certainty of action, even within the United States, no less how that might be observed outside of the country where they are likely doing business? So I, I think the short answer is, you know, do they? There's no clear answer to that, but that factor is enough to make it that mm -hmm. big businesses that are responsible are not going to touch it. That's great. Yeah, I mean, I th when you start talking about extraterritorial aggressive defense, I think that's a, that's a loser from point go. If you do not have proper legal authority, I think it's a disaster, mainly because in a stand-your-ground circumstance, you're dealing with a personal threat to your life, uh, and the way the law is written is it has to fit that criteria. This you would have you could never make that argue legal argument here. Number one and number two, again, when you go when you decide you're going to breach territorial uh, jurisdiction and go after someone, you have opened up a can of worms of which is well beyond the scope of your threat, and that's where I think we have to. And our policy is not there. We don't even in the United States have a good offensive policy. I think it was Admiral Rogers uh, not that long ago, within the last few months. Uh, said just as much as that, that we don't really have a good cyber offensive policy. We talked about it, and infinitum, in classified settings for the entire 10 years I was on the intelligence community, and we could never get consensus to move to the next place on what that cyber offensive is. And by the way, just as a personal note, I, I just saw that the administration says they're going to make China pay for the consequence for the OPM hack. I can't wait. I cannot wait to see what the heck that thing is. Uh, and I'm, candidly, I'm not, I'm not too excited about what's going to be. We, have, we, have, uh, we haven't crossed that threshold to bring everybody in a room and try to work through this problem. I would, you know, long answer to your question, but I, I don't believe they have the right to go extraterritorial to protect what they perceive would be a threat at that point. That's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much. If we could give a hand to the speakers. That's just right. You can, you can see how we could take many hours talking about that, but we're going to roll right into the next panel um, on capabilities needed to protect and defend in a cyber-enabled economic war. So um, while, while we're getting our seats, um, before I, I turn it over to the, the panelists for um, this discussion, I want to read a, a very short paragraph. Um, there is an intellectual no-man's land where military and political problems meet. We have no tradition of systematic study in this area, and thus few intensely prepared experts. The military profession has traditionally depreciated the importance of strategy, where politics are important, as compared with tactics. Now we are faced with novel and baffling problems to which we try to adapt certain ready-made strategic ideas inherited from the past. If we examine the origin and development of these ideas, we may be better able to judge whether they actually fit the present and future. So this was written in 1959 by Bernard Brody in his treatise, Strategy in the Missile Age. And it is a prescient piece. I recommend it to all. Um, his calls for new ideas and scholarship to deal with the atomic age helped the U.S. create the doctrine and capabilities that guided us for the last half century, at least. But I would add to Brody's assessment that there is an intellectual no-man's land where political, military, and economic problems meet, and that we have no tradition of systematic study in this area. 
So within our uh, monograph and in our earlier seminars, I have turned to earlier work that, that I and others did on the nuclear kill chain and thought about its applicability to this evolving threat of cyber-enabled economic warfare. And there are indeed vast differences, um, namely the hurdle for development, acquisition and use, but also what I call in one of the previous panels somewhat referenced it, the could we be in a war and not notice metric. You know, I think it'd be hard to ignore the use of a nuclear weapon, but as we heard in our last panel, we are fully engaged in a cyber-enabled economic war. Um, so the kill chain of needed capabilities, so to speak, may have to be thought about differently. But nonetheless, it's basic elements, intelligence and warning, deterrence, detection, forensics, interdiction, battle management, consequent management, and recovery serve as a useful way to gauge our current capabilities and create the doctrine and technologies that we need going forward. So at this point, I want to welcome our three amazingly talented individuals that will talk about the nexus of policy and technological developments. Um, the first is Mark Dubowitz, uh, who's executive director of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, where he leads projects on Iran, sanctions, and nonproliferation. He's an expert on sanctions and has testified before Congress and advised the U.S. administration, Congress, and numerous foreign governments on Iran and the sanctions issues. He heads uh, the Foundation uh, FDD Center on Sanctions and Illicit Finance and is the co-author of more than a dozen studies on economic sanctions against Iran. Um, so, Mark? Great. Off to you. Great. Sam, thank you very much. First of all, Sam, I hope you will um, keep me to my five minutes. So maybe give me a, a nudge if I'm over five minutes. I'm going to try and make That's my remarks short. Um, I want to thank Sam very much for involving me in this project. It's been a fascinating project with amazing people to be involved in. Ken, thank you very much for, for hosting this and allowing FDD to co-host this. And, and Mark and Michael, pleasure again to be with you. And also, I want to play, pay a special note to um, a young woman who co-authored this report with me, Annie Fixler, who's based in New York, who is really one of those re remarkable people, sort of next generation of economic warriors. And, uh, and I know Juan knows her very well, Samantha knows her very well, and it's certainly, I think, satisfying to the three of us Then when, when we're off playing golf in our retirement, someone like Annie is going to be uh, continuing the fight. Let me talk a little bit about the, the paper that we wrote together, and I want to I put this in, in context. The paper is called Cyber-Enabled Swift Warfare. We call it Swift Warfare because the case study that we dealt with as, as part of the analysis is the SWIFT financial messaging system which is sort of the global standard that if, if I want to wire money to Juan, my, my Citibank has SWIFT codes, and Juan's account at Chase Manhattan has SWIFT codes, and it's the way our two financial institutions talk to each other so that I can wire money to Juan, which I do often. <laughs> um, no, no, absolutely. Um, so the, the key looking at SWIFT is SWIFT really was the, the high point of the U.S. government's economic warfare campaign against Iran. And, and it, it reminds me that there was a point in time where we actually engaged in economic warfare against Iran. This is coming at a, a particularly troubling moment for me, having spent a lot of time working on Iran, to see the U.S. government now dismantle the entire sanctions infrastructure that we've put in place in, in pursuit of this nuclear deal, but that's a, a topic for another panel. But certainly for a period of time, as David, David Sanger explained in the New York Times, the U.S. Treasury Department, uh, where Juan worked, and under Juan's leadership and Stuart Levy's leadership, David Cohen's leadership, and now Adam Zubin, 
the U.S. Treasury Department was described as President Obama's favorite non-combatant command, and for good reason. It, it had become the locus for economic warfare against the Iranian regime, and, and really it was a decade of escalatory measures that began under President Bush, the designation of key Iranian banks and Revolutionary Guard entities, and it actually culminated in the passage of sanctions legislation by Congress. Uh, Congressman Rogers certainly played a, a key role in that. And it really was, it was fascinating because it, it, as these sanctions escalated, you saw over time a dramatic impact on the Iranian economy and on Iranian decision-making. And some of the key events along the way included the U.S. Treasury Department's USA Patriot Act 311, where they actually it was a finding that the entire jurisdiction of Iran, the financial sector of Iran, was a jurisdiction of primary money laundering concern. It was legislation that was passed by Senators Menendez and Kirk, which legislatively designated the Central Bank of Iran as the key pillar of that jurisdiction of primary money laundering concern. And then in 2012, again, Congress, over the objections of the administration and the Europeans, actually passed legislation threatening sanctions against the board of directors of SWIFT, and that legislation encouraged the Europeans and eventually SWIFT to expel dozens of Iranian banks from the SWIFT system. It was, it was unprecedented. It was the first time in SWIFT's history that there was a wholesale de-SWIFTing of a country's financial institutions. And it ultimately cut off Iran from the global financial system, made it impossible for the Iranians through the formal system to move money, to finance trade, to repatriate their, uh, their foreign exchange earnings. Now, it was, it was certainly a tool of, of very effective coercion, um, and, but it was something that our adversaries have learned from. And I would note that when it comes to SWIFT, we've seen calls from uh, the U.S. Congress, from the British government, in fact, from pro-Palestinian organizations to use SWIFT, again, as this ultimate instrument of economic coercion. And in fact, uh, last year, pro-Palestinian organizations asked SWIFT to de-SWIFT Israeli banks, particularly those banks that had branches in, the, in the, t the disputed territories. The British government asked for SWIFT to de-SWIFT Russian banks, and that led to a response from the head of one of Russia's largest banks, VTB Bank, who said that de-SWIFTing of the bank would be an act of war, an act of, of economic war. We've seen our adversaries try to take our playbook on Iran and, and use it in other ways. Uh, in Russia, the, the Russians are using economic warfare against our allies in Central Europe and Eastern Europe. There they're using energy warfare, the dependence that our European allies have on Russian natural gas, for example. And then there's been a whole series of measures, both offensive measures against Russia because of its annexation of Crimea and invasion of Eastern Ukraine, um, but also retaliatory measures by the Russians against our allies and against the United States, leading to the need for defensive measures. If you move to the Asia-Pacific region, the Chinese have used economic warfare and political warfare against Taiwan, for example, for years to persuade the international community that Taiwan should not be recognized as an independent state. The Chinese cut off the export of rare earth minerals for a couple of months uh, when there was a dispute with the Japanese. And those rare earth minerals were very important, were actually critical to key industries of the Japanese economy. And as everybody knows, in the South China Sea, there have been significant territorial disputes between China and the Philippines and Vietnam and Japan and other countries. And the, the Chinese have matched their naval maneuvers with economic coercion. And so what you're seeing essentially is 
our adversaries learning from us that there, it, the power of economic warfare, the power of economic coercion as a dominant instrument of coercive statecraft. Now, the United States and, and certainly our allies in the Middle East and Asia and in Europe are lucky because the United States still remains the dominant uh, global financial superpower. You know, 81%, I think it is, of uh, global transactions are done in the U.S. dollar. 60% of foreign exchange reserves are held in the U.S. dollar. 45% of global financial transactions are done in the U.S. dollar. So because of the U.S. dollar's dominant position in the global financial system, we still wield tremendous power. But no, make no mistake, that is changing, and it's changing in some fundamental ways. The Russians and the Chinese, for example, are creating an alternative to the swift financial messaging system. It's in a nascent form right now. It's unlikely to attract the kind of support that SWIFT has today with 10,500 financial institutions using the SWIFT system. But over time, it may erode the global dominant position of SWIFT. The Chinese have a combination credit card, Interact card, uh, which is available in 100-plus countries around the world. It has a market position. It represents 45% of the total number of cards in global circulation and something like 25 to 30% of the total transaction value. It's quite extraordinary. And for the Chinese, it's very useful, and for the Russians, because it's de-linked from, from New York. So when we were imposing sanctions on Russian banks, the Chinese moved in after MasterCard and Amex and Visa moved out and offered this card to Russian banks who could then offer an Interact card and a global credit card de-linked from New York and therefore not susceptible to our sanctions. The Chinese have set up the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, right, which is an alternative bank for infrastructure financing, which has attracted significant global support, including from most U.S. allies. And as a final example, and there are many others, the Chinese have gone to um, the IMF and asked that the something called the SDRs, which were special drawing rights, which essentially represent a, uh, a global asset, a foreign exchange asset, that asset is linked to a basket of currencies, including the U.S. dollar and the Chinese yuan. The Chinese have been pressuring the, uh, the IMF to actually change the allocation, the percentage allocation in that basket, so that the yuan is more highly represented. And these are just four examples of how, over time, the Chinese are trying to erode our global dominance. So we're, we may be witnessing a creation of a parallel financial system over time, that diminishes the power of the U.S. dollar. Let, let me end on this with just some specific uh, recommendations. Annie and I conducted a lot of interviews with folks in the U.S. government, a lot of former uh, treasury officials, state officials, people in, in Europe and Asia, because what we really wanted to find out was what kind of defensive measures were we actually taking. We've been very good on the offense, but how good have we been on the defense? And what we discovered, particularly in the U.S., is that there hasn't been as much thinking about defensive economic warfare. How do we create an economic defensive shield to protect the U.S. and our allies from the use of offensive weapons by the, the Iranians, the Russians, the Chinese, and others against our closest allies? And we, we, you'll see in the, in the monograph came up with some specific recommendations, but specific recommendations within the U.S. government, changes, institutional changes within the interagency, the idea of creating, number one, an office of policy planning at the U.S. Treasury Department. State has an office of policy planning. Our recommendation is the Treasury Department should have an office of policy planning where they're really thinking about these kinds of defensive measures, and they have the time, 
unlike our, our friends at Treasury who are drinking from a fire hose every day, to think through what kind of specific measures we can put in place to defend the United States and our allies. Number two was actually standing up an economic warfare directorate or subdirectorate at the NSC. Our sense from the NSC was there, there are folks that have a lot of strong uh, planning on the, on the economic side. They understand markets. They understand financial markets. But the idea of having people at the NSC who understand sanctions and illicit finance and the use of economic warfare would be useful. Three was actually establishing a doctrine on the use of economic warfare. We have doctrines about everything. We have doctrines from the nuclear age. We have doctrines about missile defense. And we certainly have a new cyber doctrine that folks have spoken about. An economic warfare doctrine would be very useful. How should we be using this offensively? How should we be using this defensively? And then maybe a controversial recommendation, but the idea of setting up an economic warfare command. Right? We, we actually have commands uh, in the U.S. government. Most of them, I believe, are at the Pentagon. Um, but this idea would be an economic warfare command that would draw the best and the brightest of, and the res necessary resources across the interagency. Our recommendation was to, to locate it at Treasury. I'm sure there'll be a lot of debates uh, about that. But those four specific recommendations on both doctrine and on institutional changes so that we can actually protect our allies against the use of economic coercion. I'll, I'll finally end with this. Israel has been an interesting example because the, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel suggests that we are seeing the canary in the coal mine. You know, we're seeing that here is a small uh, democracy, liberal democracy, an ally of the United States, where all of a sudden economic warfare is being used against Israel in order to achieve the political objectives of, of those who oppose Israel's position in, in the territories. Whatever position you take on the territories, whatever position you take on these regional disputes, uh, my assessment, my conclusion is we should be protecting our allies with cyber defenses, ballistic missile defenses, military defenses, and economic warfare defenses, regardless of our assessment of uh, who's right with respect to a regional dispute. This is the canary in the coal mine. As terrorism once came to our shores, economic warfare will one day come to our shores, and we have to start thinking through the kinds of methodologies, doctrines, and institutional changes to create that economic defensive shield. That's, that's great. The only thing I would take issue with is economic warfare has reached our shores. Um, and, and I think Mark, Mark and Annie would agree. And in their chapter, um, they really do kind of delve down into, all right, look, if, if we're going to be serious about this, then let's be serious. And what does that mean in terms of organizational um, uh, changes that may be necessary in the U.S. government? But our next two speakers focus on um, where really the rubber meets the, ro the road in terms of the technologies that are going to be needed, how we think about that, because ultimately, you know, we're going to have to be able to back up our words of, of deterrence with our technologies. Um, and uh, the first speaker is Dr. Michael Shea, who's a program manager in the Information Innovation Office at DARPA, um, which for those who may not know is the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. His focus is on quantitative and cryptographic techniques for establishing provable security in big data and software. Previously, he was a research scientist at uh, SAIC and a scientific consultant at Booz Allen Hamilton, and he holds a PhD in chemistry from Princeton. So, Michael? Okay. Well, first of all, thanks, Sam. Um, I, I think I speak for Mark as well, too, when I say that those of us who work on the, te on the technology side of the house um, found this to be a very useful and fun exercise to think about the broader context in which a lot of our work lives. 
And as a prefatory remark, I should say that um, all the opinions I express today, since I'm still in government, are my own and not those of DARPA or of the U.S. government. So I'm gonna actually going to begin on a slightly downbeat note. Today, you can't, you can barely turn on your news browser without seeing a fresh story about yet another U.S. firm victimized by some kind of economic espionage or intellectual property theft. And what is vexing about today's state of affairs is that there does not seem to be a clear path out of this very bad equilibrium. The purpose of my article in the monograph is to hopefully provide some new thinking that may help us out of the state. One, by taking a historical perspective on economic espionage as really kind of a timeless instrument of competition between nation states. And number two, a scientific perspective on technologies that can potentially help us flip the script on the economic spies and the IP pirates that are targeting our national industries and undermining our national economic strength. So to begin, we have some history that could help us here. The notion of intellectual property actually evolved over centuries as an enshrinement of the system of economic reward to the inventors of valuable ideas. The United States economy is particularly sensitive to the climate in which such rewards are protected because in a 2012 report by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, 75 out of 313 U.S. industries are categorized as IP intensive, and they account for more than 27 million jobs and more than 18% of all employment in the U.S. in 2010. According to the 2013 report by the Commission on the Theft of American Intellectual Property, the U.S. loses over $300 billion a year in IP theft. The report stated that if IP were to receive the same protection overseas that it does here, the American economy would add millions of jobs and encourage significantly more R&D investment and economic growth. Now, unfortunately, not all countries in the world are serious about protecting a rule-of-law-based IP rights regime. But Perhaps one of the great ironies of history is that the United States has been befo here before in this problem, although on the other side of the problem. In the immediate aftermath of America's war for independence from the UK, our young republic itself engaged in a no-holds-barred campaign of privately conducted but officially tolerated IP theft against British industry in order to supercharge the young American manufacturing economy. Now, the British response to this was quite rigorous. They were fully aware of the stakes of this kind of conflict, they imposed export controls on machines and designs, restrictions on skilled emigration, and sometimes even acts of arson against U.S. factories employing stolen British IP. So I know that there's been some talk about hackbacks in the previous panel, and this isn't really what we have in mind, but the idea of hackbacks is not terribly new, actually. It's been tried. Arson aside, the British strategy would not look unfamiliar to American officialdom today. Yet by any reasonable accounting, the British policy completely failed to snatch the diffusion of their most sensitive manufacturing IP into the factories of its unfriendly transoceanic rival, which went on to eclipse the UK as the world's manufacturing leader. Now, all of this must sound distressingly familiar to all of us today. And in 2015, it's obvious that it is America that is playing defense in this game. So to exemplify the struggles of all of our IP-sensitive industries, I will focus on the software industry, not only because they are the largest by export value, but because there are also new ideas pertinent to that industry that might inspire new thinking for other industries' protections as well. To give a partial illustration of what our software industry struggles with, in a report by the Business Software Alliance, 19% of the software sold in the U.S. is pirated. But in China, as one other example, 77% 77 of the software transacted is pirated. 
But beyond the simple crime of making and running unauthorized pirate copies, there is actually the deeper and far more insidious theft made possible by prying into the source code of software to extract the proprietary algorithms and ideas that are created through vast sums of research, vast sums in research and development dollars. So how do we stop something like this? Through the lens of how we might protect our software industry, we develop a model for thinking, a new model for thinking about how to protect our IP based not only on law and diplomacy, but on technology and economics as well. That may change the dynamic between attacker and defender in this IP conflict. The status quo in defending our nation's IP interests in general tilts towards the kind of diplomatic and legal remedies favored by the British. And as we have seen through historical experience, there are fundamental limitations to this kind of approach. So it is useful to pull back a step and think about the problem at a more basic level. IP theft is fundamentally as much an economic as it is a criminal phenomenon. And we have seen through, again, historical experience that laws and diplomacy are limited in their ability to deter criminals from this kind of crime. So the question is, can we use technology and economics to deter economic decision makers from deciding to steal as opposed to not steal? Can we raise the technical cost of stealing to such high levels that it no longer becomes worthwhile to do so? So the good news is that the answer is yes, but there are some major caveats. Today, commercial software is effectively defenseless against being wrong of its deep IP by reverse engineers because the state of the art in defending software against such theft largely consists of inserting passive junk code to inveigle the attacker by essentially giving him more code to read and to understand. However, this security through obscurity approach can almost always be defeated in under a day with standard software tools and is almost universally regarded as ineffectual among software security experts. But the good news here is that a recent mathematical breakthrough by UCLA computer scientist Amit Sahai and collaborators has opened up the door to making new kinds of software that can baffle even the best resourced reverse engineers. The new approach entails writing the source code in such a way that unwrapping its inner commercial secrets is equivalent to computing a mathematical problem whose solution provably requires lifetimes of effort, even with the most powerful supercomputers and algorithms known today. Now this is exciting because this is the kind of technological breakthrough that could be the impetus for imagining a future where our IP rights are protected not by the laws of governments or nations, but by the laws of mathematics. But here, there are some huge caveats. Realizing such technologies, not only for software, but maybe for other products as well too, will very likely require radically new scientific ideas that will take years, if not decades, of sustained research and effort. But if these efforts are successful, such efforts could ensure economic leadership far into the future. And to pivot to another problem, one of the issues that we have in the cyber threat today is that victims are caught up in a very pathological dynamic in which they actually have sometimes an interest in concealing their own victimhood. We talked about this in the context of cyber threat sharing. So one of the other interesting things that has emerged in the academic research over the past 30 years is the field called secure multi-party computation. And so this really began as something of an academic problem about a little bit more than 30 years ago. This was called the millionaire's problem, by which two millionaires want to see which one of them has more money, but they don't want to reveal exactly how much money each has, basically. I don't know how millionaires think, but it's, it's a neat problem. <laughs> So the bottom line is that you know, this might seem a, a, like kind of a contrived problem, but it's, it, from a cryptographic and mathematical perspective, it's not trivial at all, actually. And a whole field of cryptography 
built up specifically around this that morphed into what we call SMPC today. Now, given that that was a relatively contrived problem 30 years ago, what this has evolved into 30 years later is a very valuable and practical technology in a very real problem. So in space today, there are some dozens, or if not scores, of spacefaring nations. They all have their satellites going at very high speeds, and every country and every agency and every company has an interest in not having their satellites collide. The problem, though, is that when you reveal your trajectories, you're giving away either sensitive commercial information or even national security information. So how do you share information about your satellites without giving away those kinds of secrets? So where the research has gone is from that very contrived millionaire's problem some 30 years ago to actual technologies, to actual software today that, that could actually help the likes of national space agencies and companies share their, kind of, their, share their information without revealing private information. Now, this is obviously exciting because these are not trivial problems. For the math geeks out there, these are 200-degree you know, integrals, actually, you know, over space and time, you know, for, for objects going at near relativi relativistically relevant speeds, basically. You know? So it, it's, it's a hard problem and computationally very difficult. But there, again, exists software after three decades of investment that actually gets us closer to that problem. And so it's not hard to see how this maps onto a lot of the kinds of sharing problems that we have within the cyber threat realm, which actually has a non-trivial and very important privacy component as well, too. And so to conclude, I think it's actually very fitting that the ingenuity of the American economic system that has produced so many value-creating, world-changing ideas could be, at the end of the day, the source of defenses to protect those very ideas. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Doesn't it make you feel good that he's in the government <laughs> protecting us? Why does something feel good? Yes. Yeah, he's, he's tremendous. Um, but, uh, you know, the modern-day, I think, problem of uh, the millionaire's problem now is to actually figure out how much money does Donald Trump actually have. So I think that's, <laughs> that's where it's evolved to. Um, uh, and, and finally, um, uh, Mark Tucker is the founder and CEO of Temporal Defense Systems and founding board member of the Cyber Insurance Company of America. And at TDS, he leads a team of experienced white hat hackers and technologists that are redefining the technology security paradigm to safeguard computing devices and networks in the cyber war era. So, right. well, That was a mouthful. Thank you, Samantha. And thank you for inviting me. I think this is a great way to look at the problem because this problem is a complex problem and it's really not quite understood. But when you marry those two terms of cyber war with economic cyber war, it brings multiple notions that help cross-pollinate and define the problem. So before I kind of go into a few things and ideas that I think might help and correct the problem, I think we're still at the point where we need to quantify and qualify and basically understand the problem's dynamics. And so when I, when I heard a few things in the previous panel, I was diametrically opposed, right? But I was down there and couldn't talk. So I, I've, I've held some of those things. And I understand why the comments were made. And the comments were made because of these trends and these economic things happening and trying to understand the essence of what's going on here is what forums like this are about. And so when, when you look at cyber economic warfare, you're like, well, what is it? Well, it's war. It's not crime. There's a difference between having a war environment and a criminal environment. Crimes happen in war. But I think it's very safe to say that if we, if we kind of get some actionable assumptions and say, okay, maybe it's not provable 100%, but a preponderance of evidence 
means that this assumption is you know, pretty good and we can start making some action plans around it. Because ultimately, I think America needs a, a cyber action plan. We've got the, the Department of Cyber <coughs> Command now. We've got multiple departments of everything. But the core of the problem, I think, is still a little bit elusive. So I think a few things in the, in the first panel were perfect and spot on. So let's say actionable assumption, cyber war is here and upon us. And I would go so far as saying, when did cyber crime become cyber war? You know, what inflection point in time did that happen? That happened in the Stuxnet attack. That was the shot heard around the world, and that is when cyber war became you know, kind of think of it like the turning point of criminal gangs and all these activities happening to something that became a, a uh, you know physical damage was caused and it caused you know geopolitical outcomes because of it. So that one thing is like shot heard around the world. We can assume that cyber war is here, and then we start looking at well. What does the dynamic of cyber war look like? Well, it looks like a low intensity conflict in war terms to me. It doesn't look like it doesn't look like the, you know the power balance between you know the the nuclear war era where everybody built up these huge offenses and nobody struck. Why? Because there's there's proliferation has already occurred. That dynamic doesn't exist in cyber because there's too many actors, there's too many people, it takes one individual. So that would be equivalent to saying, well, if we, if we think about it like you know, trying to do a nuclear power arms race buildup of offensive cyber weapons, it just won't work because we can't control it. There's, there's too many points of attack basically heading through. But if you look at it like a low-intensity conflict, you can pretty much say, okay, cyber war is here to stay for a long time. There's going, to be, there's going to be interesting things that, that happen. So the playing field is basically, if I could compare a, a few examples of where a low-intensity conflict is occurring, we look at, um, we look at uh, Iraq in 2004 when all of a sudden America comes in. We take the country over. I was there, by the way, so the ground truth I had then is equal to the ground truth I have now on the problem. So I've seen it from all different levels. And so, you know, when I, w when I was first there, there was a bomb here and there, and it went off, and yeah, it was scary. But, I mean, in essence, there was a power void because S Saddam was gone, and nobody knew what to do. So the criminal gang started to move first, and there was, you know, a, a little bit of activity happening. Well, what happens when those types of low-intensity conflicts evolve? The next stage is coordination where all of a sudden there's six bombs going off and they're going off at the same time and the frequency's going up. So when we look at, when we look at, the, uh, when we look at the threat horizon over a 20-year period on cyber war, basically what we're seeing is a negative threat for 20 years, a negative trend that's occurring. And so now when most of that occurred in the, you know, think of it as cyber crime era, now in the cyber war era, we've seen the curve steepen. And so in essence what's happening is if you look at the battlefield, and the battlefield's interesting in cyber war because it's all around all of us, and it's global. So you're saying, well, what, what's going on? Well, the frequency of attacks is occurring, and the battlefield is being softened. So when we see all these attacks happening on the banking systems, on the transportation systems, and all these negative economic pieces, we haven't seen anything yet. This is just the normal course of a low-intensity conflict. And so the next stage is basically coordination. And when coordination occurs, 
people are going to get worried and scared, and a plan is completely required. Now, what we should be doing is learning from these types of discussion points so that we can make this plan and get ahead of the curve. And so if we take the assumption that we're in, we're in the cyber war era, it looks like low-intensity conflict. We've got a power void because nobody's controlling what's going on. And then we're saying, okay, well, maybe we need to come up with some assumptions of how we got here. Well, why is security so bad? And you can you know, borrow economic principles to understand that. It's pretty easy. And the, the question that was asked is, why don't the manufacturers share in the liability? Well, you want to know why? It's because Bill Gates's dad was an attorney and a very smart attorney. And every time you load software, you hit an OK button, and you basically take the liability and shift it over to you. Or if you're a company, you shift the liability over to your company. So now... It makes total sense that we've got so many security holes because the economic incentive is not with the, with the manufacturer of these products. And so uh, a part of what Steve was talking about, while I disagree with him, I understand how he got to those notions because it's like, well, you can't fix the problem. So all we have is offense. And I would suggest this, that we can fix the problem. The, the defensive problem is fixable. But like any problem, we have to be able to quantify it. If we don't quantify the problem and we can't measure the problem, we don't know if it's improving or you know, getting worse. We can see the attacks move up and down, but we don't know how to compare one technology against another technology. You know, what is the security of this industry? What is the baseline? We don't have any of those metrics right now. And so one of the technologies that will shift that, maybe it won't shift the liability back to the manufacturers, but it'll change purchasing habits when people know one operating system scores a three and another operating system scores a four in security. So what that will do is allow economic principles to basically take the security responsibility and allow the consumers or the companies or the purchasing managers to basically buy more secure stuff. And so once, once we know how to measure it, and that technology is in existence now, then all of a sudden we can start to say, all right, we're going to basically change the evolutionary path of technology. Because now that we can measure it, it's no longer good enough to say, I have good security, I have a firewall, I have antivirus, and um, I have an, an intrusion detection system. What will actually happen is you'll say, well, your security is a three. You may have all those things, but those things aren't basically raising your level of security. And so by basically creating the standard used to measure for technology, which is called QSM, which is one of our company's products that we worked with uh, George Mason University over the last four years to basically solve, is a huge building block to basically changing this shifting liability landscape and allowing the security level to go back into technology. And so when we, when we look at these problems and we go, okay, so there's an okay button. Wow, that okay button sure did a lot. Yes, it did. But there's also other things that did a lot to technology. And, you know, Moore's Law, for example, every two years a chip gets twice as fast. Right? There hasn't been any interesting, profound observational laws even, right? But if we've got this 20-year negative trend where the th threats keep going higher and higher and now at an increasing point – if we can get ahead of that curve by, let's say, just two years, right? So if now all of a sudden we're, we've got the ability to measure technology security and we can start to use America's creativity and America's production force and harness 
the country's resources on a technological basis that's now focused toward better security, we can come up with maybe the Ravage Law and say, well, if America stays two years ahead on security, then we're basically going to hit an inflection point where that trend starts to go down. And as long as we stay two years ahead, then all of a sudden we're heading in the right trajectory for defensive security. And I would also advocate that, yeah, in this American Cyber Action Plan, we've got to say, okay, 85% of the resources are some number, and 85% is defense, 15% is offense, for example. And so we have to come up with those, those measures and those metrics, and then we basically have to coordinate as a country to utilize our resources to win. We're America. We own the technology market still. We may not know, own the manufacturing base, but it's still our ideas. Why do you think they're stealing our IP? Because we're ahead. So let's use the things that America can basically take to market and the fact that our vulnerability is the fact that we're connected, right? But that's also our greatest strength. So if we harness what put us here and we just look at it in a little bit different way, then I think we can make an improvement on the defensive side. And I think on the offensive side, if we start thinking of the problem like low-intensity conflict and you know, we create things to beat cyber insurgencies, which is basically what's happening, and we kind of look at the surge, we can you know, have a, a banking industry surge to basically take the fight back to them and to create those deterrence portions. But it's not going to be a police type of effort because there's no laws being enforced and there's the ability to basically bring someone to justice is very difficult. So it's going to look like you know, a low-intensity conflict cyber war environment. So anyway, my time's up. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Before we, before we go to the questions, um, I just wanted to, to mention um, when we started this project, we really wanted to create a larger um, group of people in uh, – that are interested in this topic, that take different pieces of the research on to move it forward. Right? We never wanted it to be that this is the be-all and end-all. Right? So um, there's a lot to go forward on this. One of the things that I think this, this panel and the last one really showcase um, are the needed kind of uh, places where policy and new technologies you know, come come to bear, and um, uh, you know, on that I was I was uh, Hudson Hudson Institute's co-founder Herman Kahn um, wrote the six desirable characteristics of a deterrent. Right, he wrote that a, ter- a deterrent to be successful must be frightening, inexorable, persuasive, cheap, non-accident prone, and controllable. So if we just even start with those six things, and you can imagine having both the policymakers, the warfighters, the technologists around a table saying, all right, look, here's the problem. How do we create a deterrent that both rests with sound policy, doctrine, and the technologies to be able to do what Khan recommended? I think we would really move this conversation ahead. Um, okay, my interjection. Uh, No, wait, wait, wait a second. Yeah, yeah, Fanusi, uh, FDD, Center on Sanctions and Illicit Finance. Uh, great thought-provoking panel, both panels actually. And actually there was something that was said in the first panel that uh, provoked a question that I think is appropriate for, for, for you all, um, which was the reference to us losing the space race. And it made me think about President Kennedy decades ago. You know, he set the goal and he set the goalposts. 
and the undercurrent in terms of getting to the moon and, and the space race. And the undercurrent, of course, was our competition with the Soviet Union and the and you know the tremendous threat that was there. But you know, over that decade, he really sort of galvanized, or the country galvanized, you know, with this goal, and it was inspiring. It was very positive. So if we were to look at the cyber war, the cyber race, you know, what would be the goal uh, or the goalposts? Is there a way to sort of galvanize this, you know, next generation of, of young people um, and others within our society to target a specific goal so that we could win the cyber race, which we're losing? Um, Michael, do you want to take this first? Okay. Well, so I think, you know, that's an analogy that's often drawn. And, of course, it's, it's problematic, you know, because with a space race, you know, there's clearly defined goalposts as to progress, sending a man into space, you know, sending a man on the moon, you know, sending, sending a device to Mars and beyond and so on and so forth. And so, you know, the problem with cyber, though, is that the agenda is much more diffuse, as you imagine. Cyber is a lot of things. You know, there are the, the, the kinds of cyber problems that exist on machines and networks. And there is, as, as uh, you know, Chairman Rogers mentioned in the previous panel, anthropological problems around cyber as well, too. Because, you know, I think the, one of the, the things that tends to be a distractor in the cyber debate is an overemphasis on the technological dimensions. There is a tremendous human dimension involved here as well, too, because it's a security problem, and all security problems are human problems. And so just looking at the statistics of the kinds of compromises that occur because somebody opens an email or somebody opens an attachment or goes to a link and then all hell breaks loose after that. Well, you know, at the end of the day, you're not going to get away from that because we don't design software and networks for machines. We design them for ourselves. And, and, you know, so I think where we could possibly direct one area of research, actually, is to say that, well, we should stop blaming the human because we are human. You know, we should be able to open up a link, you know, or an attachment or go to a site without, you know, trembling in moral fear that it's going to compromise the entire enterprise. And so whereas I think there's going to be a much more diffuse kind of agenda for the cyber problem, I think there are some problems that could still be very ambitiously stated, very much like the problems of the space race as well, too. That's one of them, but I'm sure there's others as well, too. That's great. I would just add to this. I mean, maybe this is too simplistic, but I think when it comes to cyber, the whole notion of winning is something that we're, 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 we're cautious about and we're careful about it. So we, don't, we don't actually want to win in cyber. We just want to survive. And it's sort of with, with you know, I mean, kind of histor in histor historical terms, you know, we invent the cannonball. We don't want to win using the cannonball. We just want to survive if the other side gets one. We invent, you know, missiles. Again, we don't want to just win using missiles. We just want to create missile defense shields just in case the other side develops bigger missiles than we have. And, and there seems to be some hesitation when it comes to cyber. I don't work in the cyber field, but I, I, I sense it in the language. I mean, I, I would say, yeah, yeah, the goal should be we're going to win a cyber war. And that any country that launches a cyber attack against us is going to be met with fearsome retaliation. And I, again, I don't know what we're going to do against the Chinese because of, of OPM. I have no idea. But I don't hear in the rhetoric of the president right, a commitment to actually win. And, and I think that we need to send a message that we're the United States of America, and whether you hit us with cannonballs or missiles or cyber attacks, we are going to retaliate in a fearsome way, and our goal is going to be to win the, in the cyber world as, as, we, as we won, I think, in missiles, I think we've, and we won, when we won in cannonballs. I think it's a, it's a commitment at that level before we get into exactly how we do it on a, on a technical level and how do we reorient 
the U.S. government on an institutional and a doctrinal level in order to do so. Well, I also think that there's, um, there's, there's measurable goalposts along the way. I mean, for example, when we hit this turning point, turning point and the 20-year trend ticks down, what, what, what is going to actually happen? Well, if, if we say, well, what's going to happen on the PLA side or the, you know, the China side? Well, unit 61398, all of a sudden, all the millions of agents that they're watching on their screens and monitoring go dark. That's, that's actionable. And when that happens, you know what we're going to see? We're going to see that unit freak out. We're going to see them go back into the drawing board. We're going to see them working day and night. They're going to start sending minions out to try to get new points so that they can basically reinsert new types of agents. And this is what I mean by we've got to be able to stay two years ahead. Because if we can stay two years ahead, the effects are dramatic. And so right now what we've done is we've basically just stayed complacent and let all these agents and things and supply chain infections just permeate everything. So I think just like that where we're saying, all right, when the turning point hits, how will you know? Because that unit that is the biggest unit in the world right now that's basically one unit against us, they're basically, their their agents go dark. And then we're going to see actions because of it. I also think that we can measure the number of cyber events that occur, and I think we can measure the you know, amount of money mm-hmm. that's stolen from a bank or credit cards. So I think we can come up with measurable, you know, are we winning metrics. Here's just a quick uh, addition to that. Here, here's an indication of how you're losing. So I, I was reading through the Iran deal the other day, and every day it's, it's a new surprise. Um, but my yikes moment of last week was I discovered that the United States – and, and our allies, we commit to protect the Iranian nuclear program against sabotage. Okay, so in effect, what we're saying is we're going to protect the Iranian regime's nuclear program against the ability of the United States, Israel, other allies to use cyber offensive weapons against Iran's nuclear program. Regardless of what happens with that nuclear program, in 10 years, 15 years' time, it will be of industrial scale with near-zero breakout, easier clandestine sneak-out. They'll have an ICBM and a powerful economy. And even then, we will commit to defend Iran's nuclear program against cyber sabotage. So, Yaya, that's not the shot to the moon. I mean, that, that's not a commitment to winning. That's, that's actually – we're going to harden our adversaries' cyber defenses. Uh, my name is Rich Wilhelm. I recently retired from Booz Allen, where I ran uh, all of uh, our business with the intelligence agencies. But 20 years ago, uh, I had a job similar to yours on Vice President Gore's staff, uh, Samantha, where we sort of did round one of all of this, and we're so much farther ahead uh, now. But I'm struck by one thing. Yes, we are much farther ahead. We understand the threat a lot better, uh, and there's a lot more technology out there. But I'm struck by um, how little progress we've made in solving the central policy issues that are going to be required to actually uh, move ahead. And you know, my thinking over the years, I think, has matured somewhat. And it seems to me that we're essentially trying to solve a problem where boundaries don't count on uh, a legal a policy, an organizational, and a bureaucratic framework where boundaries really do count. Um, And uh, I'm not just talking about geographic boundaries. I'm talking about uh, the difference between private and uh, public sector responsibilities, 
between domestic and foreign, you know, if you look at the intelligence community. Uh, and, you know, we need some new framework. What, and this is a question really for you, Mark, uh, you talked about, I mean, the government response has been to create new organizations, but not fundamentally alter the existing uh, boundaries that exist uh, in law uh, of, uh, of our existing agencies. What do you think the likelihood is that we can solve that problem over the long, road, uh, long run and that there is a new paradigm that will emerge so that, um, so that um, the interfaces between the various agencies operate a hell of a lot more smoothly than they do right now? Great. Well, th thank you for that question and, and, and for your service on, on these issues. And I would say that I'm, I'm somewhat optimistic. I mean, I, I've sort of seen it from the outside on the offensive side. I mean, I, I think we've done a pretty good job. And, you know, a lot of credit to, to Juan and um, the folks at uh, the Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence at Treasury. I mean, who had ever heard of TFI or OFAC a decade ago or 15 years ago? I mean, I hadn't. I'm, I'm sure lots of folks in this room hadn't. But what, what, what Juan and his colleagues did at, at TFI and, and OFAC had been around a long time is that they, would, they took institutions, agencies um, in the U.S. Treasury Department, and they turned them on offense and I think did a, a really remarkable job, not just leveraging government, but leveraging markets. Because the real secret sauce of, of our financial coercion on offense was not what we did to governments. It's actually what we did to companies and financial institutions in changing their risk-reward assessment with respect to doing business with rogue regimes or terrorist organizations. It was putting them in a fundamental choice. You can do business with our $17 trillion economy, or you can do business with Iran's $350 billion economy. And if you do business with their $350 billion economy, you're going to be doing business with the Revolutionary Guards and a number of very bad actors who are engaged in a range of illicit financial activities. And so that was the sort of genius of that program. Congress played a significant role in it. Other agencies played a significant role in it. But I, I would say that it's been a very successful program. Now, you know, I'm, I'm obviously very skeptical about whether we've actually used those incredible resources and achievements towards the right diplomatic ends. Um, but at the end of the day, we, we certainly hone the instruments. And our paper tries to look at it from the other point of view. Now, with those instruments honed on offense and other countries and, and adversaries using some of those same powers, how can we reorient the government to start thinking about creating a defensive economic shield. We started to make some movements on the cyber. We have Cyber Command. I'm, I'm learning a lot about some of the deficiencies that we've, we've got in that area. But from an economic warfare perspective, you know, the folks at TFI don't have the time to actually think through defensive shields, um, which, which is why an Office of Policy Planning would be useful at Treasury. It would be useful to have that kind of directorate at NSC. I, I think it would be useful to have an Economic Warfare Command with all the powers to work at an interagency level to actually think through both on the cyber side and on the traditional economic warfare side, how do we defend the United States? Here, and I'll end with this. I mean, here's a good news story to me. The state of South Carolina just passed legislation. And the legislation s simply says that any country that actually uses economic warfare against one of our allies will be denied federal, uh, state grants from South Carolina and that the state pension fund of South Carolina will have to divest from any companies engaged in economic warfare against one of our allies. 
That's interesting. It's at the state level. It's the state of South Carolina, and it's effectively saying you use economic warfare against the United States or our allies. Don't come do business in the state of South Carolina. And, and, you, and you're starting to see this spread across the country. Illinois just did something similar, and other states are contemplating. That's creating a defensive shield at the state level, which I think could actually be created at the federal level through executive orders, legislation, and creating a defensive economic architecture led by many of the same people who have been so successful on offense. Great. And um, before we take a, probably one last question, um, and just so that uh, you political scientists or IR theorists out there don't think that there's a place for you in, in this uh, robust uh, debate and moving forward and that it's just a place for economists and, and uh, technologists, um, we need a better understanding of how the different adversaries view their strategy towards us. Right? There is absolutely no reason to think that, that what is in, you know, what the Russians are doing or how they're organizing is in any way similar to what the Chinese are doing or the Iranians are doing or the North Koreans are doing. Um, and so an understanding of those states and how they view strategy and how they view tactics is a must in all this piece. And, and one um, uh, a telling point on this is that in um, uh, the weeks before the Sony hack, um, the North Koreans were speaking out at every opportunity they had screaming that the the movie that the Sony that Sony was going to release the interview was an existential threat to North Korea All right, so you know the North Korean watchers um, you know knew that that the North Koreans may possibly be gearing up to take action retaliatory action and of course when the Sony hack hit um, uh, they were some of the first ones to say you know look over at Pyongyang um, all right I think uh, last question sir Uh, James saying, uh, Dr. Sher used the phrase uh, crypto crypt cryptographically sound, and it reminded one that there are parts of the U.S. government that are somewhat allergic to crypt cryptographically sound practices, which raises the question about how serious the U.S. government is about the whole idea that uh, being crypt cryptographically unsound has advantages to the U.S. government. And any technology that you have, so the other guy will get in a year or two afterwards once you show it's possible. Any comments? Well, so I, I, again, I should preface um, all this by saying that today I'm speaking as just an individual and not as a representative of either my agency, department, or the U.S. government at large. Um, but I, I think I should also preface um, or, or uh, append uh, to my earlier comments that, you know, I'm essentially talking about things that still live very much in the research space. You know, and so obviously cryptography means a very different thing when you're talking about RSA and mature technologies, versus a lot of the the kinds of things that still happen in academic kind of circles. You know, secure multi-party computation, privacy preserving computation, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, when I say um, when I when I use terms like security in this cryptographic context, actually, you know, maybe the better word to use is provable security rather than cryptographic security, in the sense that we can quantify how much security we're getting given a certain protocol and given certain parameters and given certain settings, you know, and I think that probably is a more accurate way to characterize that. Well, that's wonderful. Um, I think with that, um, I'm going to wrap up unless you have one last uh, finishing comment. Okay, all good. All right. Uh, I thank you so much. Um, if we could give a round. <laughs>
stay tuned for um, uh, the synopsis of this seminar, the survey results. Again, I encourage you all to take it if you haven't. It's, it's fast and anonymous. And um, thank you again. Have a good day.